0: Welcome to United Against Silence. I'm Sima Reza, the CEO of Community Building Artworks, a nonprofit organization that connects veterans, healthcare workers, and civilians through workshops led by the artists of our time. Each week, we interview an artist to find out about their process and how they've overcome silence in their lives. Dr. Nisha Gupta is an assistant professor of psychology at the University of West Georgia. She has nine years of training as a psychotherapist with a focus on empowerment in the face of personal and societal traumas. She is also an arts-based phenomenological researcher, which is a method of creating artwork that illuminates the deeper meanings of our lived experiences for the purposes of fostering personal and societal awareness, catharsis, and transformation. Welcome Dr. Gupta. Well, welcome. Do you want to um, just like give a quick Intro is to like who you are, what you do, what 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 drives you. Sure, yeah. Um,
1: so my name is Dr. Nisha Gupta. I am a psychologist. I was trained as a clinical psychologist, so I actually have nine years of training as a psychotherapist. And now um, I'm no longer doing therapy, but I'm a professor and also an arts-based researcher. So doing kind of research and then um, conveying my research findings as art, um, film, paintings, etc. And a lot of my work, I think I would say is about transforming trauma into beauty. Um, What drives me across all those different hats, like professor, artist, therapist, is I just find I find there to be beauty lurking in every aspect of the human experience. Um, Certainly the joyful moments, but also sometimes the trauma and the the, healing and the empowerment that comes out of the trauma. And so um, I, yeah, so I guess I I see making art as a way to really honor and memorialize the, um, the beautiful parts of
0: our lives. Yeah, that's so beautiful. Um, I, of course, we connected when you reached out about a poem for a project you were doing um, and turned it into this beautiful painting. And we did the, um, I guess the presentation, you did like a community presentation of the paintings um, and your findings. And what I was especially struck by, I mean, there was a lot that I was struck by. And, you know, if you go to theyseearrows.com, those of you who haven't seen this work, you should. Um, but I was really struck by the fact that you honored your own experience of the making as such a central part of, so there's like, The artwork that you're looking at right the writing that you were looking at and then there's the artwork that you created in this case it was paintings which I know you do film and other things as well but in between there's the you that's absorbing that artwork and turning it into this other form of artwork and in your explanation and your sort of talk about it. You really like talked about what happened for you and valued it. Um, Is that phenomenology? Yeah,
1: I guess I would say, I don't know if you're familiar with Carl Jung, the psychoanalyst. Yeah. So I am trained clinically, um, psychoanalytically, and particularly in in a Jungian way. And I've been in Jungian analysis for some time. And it's it's actually a very spiritual type of way of making meaning of, of our psyche and what it suggests is that we have a higher power within us um, that's, you know, speaks to us through dreams or speaks to us through um, uh, revelations or insights. You know, the Eureka moment is this kind of divine source that lives within us. and. Um, if I I think about the project that you're talking about, Daisy Eros, which I just did, and I'll just do a little recap. It's about, um, I collected six women's experience, including mine, of reclaiming erotic power, um, including yours as well, and analyzed the descriptions and then turned it into art. And I would say that what's interesting, and this always happens when I'm making paintings in particular, is that I have to actually let go of myself and surrender uh, to the images that are just coming. Um, Waking up in the morning with the image of a snake. Uh, For your painting, I had the desire to watch Life of Pi uh, for some reason, and then understood Bengali tigers and their psychology and how they're, you know, you can love, they're so lovable and, and also scary. And I, I'm i just, you know, was, something was driving me to watch that movie. And, and then the whole painting um, showed up after watching the movie. So it, I think that some of what I've learned is that the process is what makes um, Aren't making so magical and joyful. Uh, of course, the final product is a work of beauty, but the process of surrender and allowing us to be guided by our intuition is is actually magical, and um, that that's some of the most beautiful part of
0: being an artist for me. I'm noticing. Um, I just like want to s- s- like sit with that. Um but we don't have a lot of time for me to just sit and stare um, <laughs> dumbly at how, how beautiful that was. Um, how did you get yourself, train yourself or silence those points of resistance that come up, right? There's like all of this stuff first fighting for our attention. And then even just like the practice of, of listening to oneself seems like really distant, especially as like, you know, social media is notifying you constantly of, of who likes what you're, you know, like just there's just like all this noise. Um, what's your process of shutting that out and listening to yourself?
1: I think a lot of it has been, I'm just thinking about the patriarchy literally (laughs) as my response because, um, you know, we're raised and socialized in a world that really values reason and rationality and proving things and thinking that we have control, right, and can master things. And a lot of my work, I think, as a woman and a a highly emotional and um, intuitive person has been honoring my (laughs) non-rational. Honoring the irrational part of me as not inferior, but actually a gift to be able to tap into. Um, and so, uh, I think that it has been a lot of undoing shame around being a person that is, is kind of, uh, more dwells in dreams and in feelings and in intuition and makes decisions that are like that, you know, right. uh, resisting shame and resisting thinking that I'm doing something wrong by actually shutting out reason to honor
0: the irrational, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, but then you're in academia. <laughs> I, I, uh... <laughs> so I'm so interested in that. Then you add that sort of reason, or I don't want to say reason, but like that rationality, that, that logic, the scholarly logic back in with the sort of academic writing Mm -hmm. at the end. Um, But you don't do that until the end. Um, Is that correct?
1: Yeah. And I do it because I also want to advocate, you know, like sometimes you have to like speak the language of academia to actually advocate for, being able to not be academic or scholarly or root everything in, in you know, um, facts and theories and, and actually just trust the wisdom that comes from our felt sense um, and our intuition. And so I actually, you know, will produce scholarship about each project and I write it in a very academic rational way, but it's all for advocating for the intuition. And I'm also in a department Um, University of West Georgia um, that that prizes um, transpersonal psychology and depth psychology and all like I'm I'm surrounded by, I feel so lucky to be surrounded by people like me and who are trying to have psychology and academia um, value these things that I'm talking about. So that really makes it helpful when you're part of a community that gets you, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I've spent some time sort of, you know, presenting poetry in clinical spaces and um, and visual art through my work in military hospitals. And oftentimes there's this real, it seems like a sense of frustration when the same things don't work with everyone, you know, the way that um, other kinds of medicine are sort of supposed to work across the board. And, um, It sounds like the approach that you're talking about really is is not expecting one thing to fit, but you're also not like expecting to treat somebody you're expecting to like allow them to meet you and give them the tools.
1: Yeah, and I should I'm going to use a fancy word here, which is the type of research I do. And it was also how I was trained as a therapist. It was a lot of um, depth psychology like Carl Jung, but also phenomenology. So that's a big word. Um, But what it really means is actually quite simple. It's trusting people's own descriptions of their lived experience to um, have powerful meaning. And so it's all about listening to our own or others descriptions of experience and then um, going down deep into the the deeper level of it. And so there's a whole process that I'll take us through in this workshop, but I think it's a beautiful thing, phenomenological research, because then it honors all of us to have wisdom just based on being human beings that are alive, that have these rich experiences in our lives. And that um, we ourselves have the wisdom to to kind of make meaning about it. Does
0: that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it, it definitely does. Um, do you find that people who have experienced medical care in other ways, I am, um, should I say, more traditional ways, um, are resistant to? Like, is there some undoing that's necessary to like make people able to put the shame away and really listen?
1: I think that people can listen to themselves better when somebody models that for them. So as a therapist and as a patient of therapy, the shame goes away when I am sitting in front of somebody who actually values my own perspective and description and isn't trying to fit it into some checklist of symptoms um, but literally listening to what depression is like from that person's own perspective, what it was like to not be able to get out of bed, what it was like, how, how do we make meaning of our own lives? Um, when somebody uh, like that's not us really listens to us, I think it gives us the courage and the like green light to start to listen to ourselves, you know? Um, and so I think that's a beautiful thing about human relationship is that um, maybe we just need to listen to each other more, you know? Yeah.
0: Has it changed um, this process of art making and listening to oneself? And then of course your, your training um, in phenomenology, has it changed your personal relationships? Like the way that you interact with the, the people that you love and are in intimate relationships with, romantic and not? I think it makes
1: me realize um, that love is empathy. I think you know and that and, and that empathy isn't easy. It's it's like a you know like we can quickly lose empathy. But I think I'm learning what love is through this perspective. How do we help each other feel heard? How do we be with one another in you know even if somebody's having a very different experience than me and interpreting something in a very different way than me, how do I honor that and help that person feel heard? And also how do I ask for that when that's not happening, right? How do I ask that? I really need to be heard right now. I really need to, I just I just want you to be here with me. And so I found that it actually gives me um, values. Like I, I can create a sense of values of what love is and then um, communicate those values and try to practice what I preach. And so it has, actually made my relationships more beautiful not easier certainly not you know certainly not easier but definitely more more attempts at loving in the way that i value what love is
0: and what is your like daily practice like what is your art practice like your personal sort of how do you stay connected to that self so I'll be
1: honest. So I did the the Daisy Arrows project um, and I finished it. And it was, you know, four months of just sinking into painting. And there was such a void afterwards. And I I thought I had to fill it with another art project, pretty, you know, I had to do, but actually I started teaching right into the semester. I started teaching graduate students, the psychology of creativity, and then really it became escorting them uh, through the thing that I went through over the summer. So I actually then my role was to help them trust their own voice and to help them deal with that inner critic and to be that reflection for them um, that I was doing for myself. And now I'm not teaching that class anymore. And I found great creative pleasure in cooking. (laughs) And I've always been a terrible cook. Um, (laughs) I shouldn't say that. I have a lot of inadequacy around cooking. And I decided I want to learn to cook and I made two, I would say gourmet meals from Blue Apron last week and I actually entered a flow state that was similar to painting and it was the first time I had ever experienced that same feeling of art making with something that's not art like cooking and it was so joyful and so I just say that to say that like, I have an official painting project that I'm going to do next, right, over the summer. But I actually like this break of seeing the art in everything um, and, and where the different areas of life can be quite artful and beautiful.
0: Oh, that's that's amazing. Um, and how does, it kind of like leads me directly into this question around, how does teaching affect your practice?
1: Um, I think t- it's, I think it's liberating to teach. I think it's so exciting. It's also being in community with others. Like I, I don't see my students as well, like these students. I see them also as peers and colleagues and, and friends, although I, I have to keep a professional role in some sense. So. I get to then be in community with other people with beautiful minds and a desire to create and help nurture that process and while I'm teaching them also learning from them and then also reaping the benefits of the beauty that they put into the world you know when you when you see the art that other people make and you're just so moved by it and so I think that what teaching does for me is really, Help me enter a community of kindred spirits, um, which is just, uh, you know, punctures the loneliness and the solitude of art making as well.
0: Yeah, yeah, I have a very similar experience. I feel like, oh, I can bring the questions that I'm asking to this group of people who have shown up with this, we have this sort of social contract of we will ask questions together. And it's it's not something that I experience everywhere else, right? Um, it's, a, it's a really beautiful thing. You also make films Mm -hmm. Um, and in both of these things though, in film and in fine art and visual art, there's like a space that I kind of struggle with traversing of like the technology of it, whether it's the image making or the literal, you know, technology that can sometimes be frustrating like if you're it's not if what's in your head is not immediately arriving in front of you. Mm-hmm. How do you like talk about that a little bit if you can?
1: Yeah, it's interesting when I made I, I made a film about um, the lived experience of being in the closet as a, a sexual minority a couple of years ago and um, It was really cool because it was the same kind of thing where the images just came to me. So I interviewed people and then I actually, after going into these deep interviews with people about their experiences, I would watch the movie scene in my mind. So it was given to me um, by this divine source. Like I just watched it play out and then my role was to translate it into an actual film, right? And -hmm. the film did not look like the movie scene in my mind. Um, But I guess, you know, we. I guess it never will. Right. And I actually don't de- you know, I, I don't actually have a thing where I devalue it for not matching that because I understand in the process it's meant to transform that it's a different thing, having something in your head and then bringing it into the world and I don't stop until I'm happy with it. So everything I've created that I've felt is complete. I'm actually, I love it. I don't. I, I think it's so beautiful, and they, even if other people don't, when I watch it, I cry every time. I, um, you know, I don't critique it because I think it's like a gift from the gods that was just like sent to me, and my task was to just try to bring it to life and honor it. Um, so I guess I just trust the process. You know, in the, during the process, I can get very frustrated. Yeah. but those are just blocks. They are in every process, I think. And if you're in that space, it's not done yet. You know, it'll get, it gets easy. You're in a block, you're frustrated. It's not coming to you. It's because um, there's something that needs to be worked through for it to flow again. So.
0: That is so, so, such super beautiful advice. Um, Cause I think a lot of people can just stop, right? Be like, oh, I can't get the thing. I've certainly abandoned particularly visual art that's just like not not being the picture that's in my head because I'm just like, ah, oh, let me just do the, something that I already know um, and I'll lose an opportunity that way. That's really helpful.
1: Yeah, because maybe it isn't supposed to be the picture in your head. That was just the catalyst. And then it's actually supposed to be something else and you don't, it's a mystery. Like for me, it's a mystery, but you can kind of listen and sense when it's not quite done. Um, and keep going to just see what awaits maybe.
0: Thank you so much for listening to United Against Silence. I'm Si Reza, and I hope we see you at a workshop soon. You can see our full schedule at www.cbaw.org. We're looking forward to being in community with you.